All right, 2 Corinthians is where we will be, and we are continuing this series that we have called Back to Basics. And really what we've done is we've just gone back to the, the basic Bible basics. I already said that twice. And are looking at how do churches operate or, and, and the why behind them. What is the why uh, or, or what is God doing and how do we play a part in that? And we started with talking about the movement of God, that God is always on the move, that God is always doing something and that God in his love for you and for me and his love for creation, he has invited us to be a part of what he is already doing. And he made that possible through his son, Jesus, coming and and taking the place of us, dying on the cross, taking our sins on his own, and raising again, defeating sin and death. We talked about how now we are invited to join him. And then last week, we talked about the kingdom, and and what is the kingdom of God? Uh, How does we play a role in that? Because the kingdom is so big, uh, and then out of the kingdom, God uses the, the church as his strategy for building his kingdom, but not just the church or the universal church, then it comes down into a small local church or a church, and then that church is made up of individuals like you and I, and that we get to play a role in this kingdom and God's kingdom by following after him in these roles. And so tonight, what I want to talk about is laboring in the harvest. I want to talk about the harvest. And the harvest is something that we talk about pretty regularly here at Hope Church. It was actually interesting uh, this last week in our community group because um, Scott just moved here last August, and there was, I think, five or six of them besides me. Scott was the longest tenured person in our community group. I was like, oh, so we've got a lot of new people recently. Uh, and so when I say this is something that we talk about regularly, it may be the first time you're hearing it, and I'm fully aware of that. So when I talk about the harvest, what we're referring to is in Matthew chapter 9, verses 36 through 38, it says that Jesus was walking along and he was seeing the, these different villages and he was going in and he was healing people and he was loving people. And it says when he saw the people, he saw that they were, there he is, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So at this time, basically everybody, you you lived on one, you'd work, but you also usually kept your own crops or you would have your own livestock at this time in the ancient age. And so uh, for us, the harvest is just going to the store. Uh, we don't fully capture what that would be like and how important the harvest was. And for these people who are relying on their livestock or relying on their fields to be bountiful, if you lose the harvest, you could very well lose your life. You could very well lose the way that you live. And the harvest was very, very important. And there was festivals in the Jewish calendar that revolved around the harvest. There was a celebration after the harvest would happen. And so here is Jesus, and he's going to these villages of these people who are being oppressed by the Roman government. They're being oppressed by the religious leaders, and they're tired, and they're worn out from everyday life. And Jesus is healing them, and he's loving them. And last week when we talked about the kingdom of God, that when God is doing these healings, and Jesus is doing these healings, he's just restoring the things that only the all-powerful creator can restore back to their original purpose. And he's demonstrating his power in this. And so he's looking around and he sees these crowds. And he sees that they are hurting, that they are harassed, that they are helpless, that they are like sheep without a shepherd. And he looks at his disciples and he said, pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out laborers. And when we preached through this several months ago, Chapter 10 starts, and he lets the disciples know, by the way, you are the laborers. The people I just told you to pray for, it's you! You're it! You're the laborers going out into the harvest, and the same is true for you and for me. That he is calling us to do this work. A couple weeks ago, we started off with this quote, and I want to remind you of it again. Does our church have a mission, or does God's mission have our church? 
Do we have this mission statement that we abide by, or do we just say, what is God's mission, and how do we, as a church, how do we as Hope Church, fall in line with what God's mission is? Another time we see harvest, and it was mentioned pretty regularly because everybody knew what it was, and it was a big deal uh, for the culture at this time. In John chapter 4, we see Jesus with a Samaritan woman, and he is basically forgiving her sins and telling her how she can now have a relationship with God. And the disciples come in, and they're amazed he's talking to a Samaritan. He's amazed he's talking to a woman. There's a lot of other things in that passage. And then Jesus goes on to explain about the harvest. And he says, sometimes you work and somebody else harvests. Uh, He says, don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. He's telling his disciples again. Since then, you have more verses or no? We know (laughs) what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope is also plain to your country. Wait, did we jump to 2 Corinthians? Ah, Sorry. In that passage, he's talking to the disciples in John 4, and he is saying, you can go out and you can go and you might work really hard and somebody else might come and reap the harvest. And sometimes other people go out and work really hard and you come and you reap the harvest. It doesn't matter. What's important is that the harvest is being gathered together. And we, uh, maybe some of you still, we, we, we made a challenge a couple of years ago that we repeated, set your alarm clock for 9.38 in reference to Matthew 9.38, so that when your clock goes off at 9.38, it's a reminder to pray for the harvest, pray for the laborers that are in the harvest. Now, I've mentioned this before as well, I grew up uh, working on farms. In fact, we were caretakers of a farm from the time I was 10, we had pigs, rabbits, yes, you can raise rabbits, (laughs) they do a great job at raising and getting more, and then we also had buffalo. Everybody grew up on a buffalo rabbit pig farm. It's a normal thing. And then we were there for two years, and then we moved to a dairy farm area, southwestern New York. Everybody knows all about the dairy farms in New York. It's what New York is known for. I made, I'm making all this up, by the way. And I remember the first day I went to work, uh, I was 12 years old, and I was hired by a farmer in our church named Harold Snyder. I've mentioned him before because he is still the hardest working human being I've ever met in my entire life. And I showed up to work, and I always loved work, like farm work. Like, that was just still is. I just really enjoy working on farms. I love working outside. I love all those things. And uh, so this was like a dream come true. And let me tell you something. When you've achieved all your dreams at 12 years old, you're really accomplishing a lot in life. And the farmer took me aside and he says, Rob, I want you to know something. Here's how we do work on this farm. We go to a meeting once a week, if it's convenient, and then everything else basically takes care of itself. You just kind of show up um, and the cows come in, they go in their stanchions, and then just, boom, milk arrives in the tank. Uh, in hay season, the hay just kind of falls over, gathers itself up in bundles, ties a rope around itself, and they all march right into the barn, into the hayloft. I was like, this is fantastic. There's no work involved. No, that's absolutely ridiculous. That is not at all what happens. However, in a spiritual sense, sometimes when we think about the harvest, that's exactly what we do. We show up to a meeting once a week, if it's convenient, And we just hope that everything else takes care of itself, even though we've been specifically commanded to be laborers in the harvest. So when you think of harvest time, you think it's time to get work done. It's time to go to work. Days are long. Days are exhausting. I I like that time of gathering hay because I got hired by every farmer in the area, and several of us teenagers did, because, as I've heard Don say, it's time to make hay, meaning you get it done. You have a short window of time. You don't know what the weather is going to be, and you go to work. And so during hay season, I was working every day as early as I could till as late as I could because I was getting paid hourly, and so you just go. But also, if you're not doing work, you do not get hired. If you are lazy and you sit back and you're letting everybody else, you will not have a job the next day. They will not hire you back to come help. So when we think of harvest time, just know that that implies hard work that it implies you have to do something, that when we are laborers in the harvest, that meant you need to go, and you need to do. It's not time to sit back. So I want to look at 2 Corinthians, and I, we have slides going back to chapter 5, so I'm just going to kind of, I was reading through 2 Corinthians this morning, and realized like, ugh, I just, I need to kind of hit on a couple other things building up to this passage in chapter 5. In 2 Corinthians, especially the first six chapters this week, if you want to read those, it is a clear 
uh, definition and explanation of who you are now in Christ. That if you have made Jesus the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life, now this is who you are. This is your identity. This is how you now know yourself. And so Paul is explaining to the Corinthians this, and I'll pick it up in chapter 2, verse 11. So if you have your Bibles, please feel free to open. I'm going to be just bouncing through and summarizing some things. But in chapter 2, starting verse 14, sorry, it says, But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. And I love this. When the Roman soldiers would have a victory, they would come back to the city, and they would come back, and, and before they would enter in triumph, they would gather outside, and they would send messengers, and that's where we get the term gospel from. Gospel means good news. And these messengers of the gospel would come in declaring that there was a victory. Uh, in Romans, it says how beautiful the feet are those that bring the gospel. The feet of those that brought the gospel were runners, and they ran barefooter and sandal. These were nasty, nasty feet, but they brought good news. And so they would come running into the city, their feet bleeding, them sore and blistered. It says how beautiful are the feet of those that bring good news. How much more so are beautiful the feet of those that bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to others. So they would come through proclaiming that this victory had been won, and then people would gather, and then there was this huge triumphal entry of the conquering army as it came in. So he's saying, now, if you have turned your life over to Christ, you are part of this triumphal entry along with Christ. He goes on and talks about the the gospel being this aroma that fills a room, and people either find it lovely or they hate it. But for those that are in Christ, that is this beautiful aroma that is the gospel, and he's saying, you are now carrying this gospel. And the last verse of chapter 2 says, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity, as those sent from God, meaning that now we have this message and we are being sent from God. In chapter 3, he's talking about this being a new covenant, that, and he uses Moses. When Moses went up on the mountain and received the um, commandments from God, when he came down with these laws, his face shone so brightly that the people asked him to cover his face because the glory of God was radiating off of him. And Paul is telling the Corinthians in chapter 3, as you read through that, he's saying, how much more, if that is how a face radiated, if that was how the face radiated God's glory through law, how much more, now that we can be free in Christ, should we be radiating the grace and the mercy that is so evident with what God has given us? And then we get to chapter 4, and it, I just have to read the whole thing. Chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians says, Therefore, Since through God's mercy we have this ministry. Again, you're going to see this over and over again in these first six chapters. This is your ministry. This is your calling. This is now what you are to do. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, talking about how Satan has put blinders on people, so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Try to think of a good way to describe this. In John, we are told that darkness has not overcome light. You see, darkness cannot overcome light. It's impossible. For, like, does anybody, um, does anybody have a cigar box here? No? I think I have one. Glad, you, glad I remember to bring this. I actually, you can get these for free at different cigar shops, and they're great for storage because they're made so that they hold air in that nothing can get in. So this has a sliding door on it. So inside, there is no light inside. There's no light that can possibly get in here. It's filled with darkness. Now, watch closely. I did this several years ago, and everyone was so bought in that I just slammed the table, and I think I like almost gave heart attacks to everybody. So there's darkness in here. Get ready, okay? Darkness did not escape and make everything dark in here. Why? Because darkness cannot overpower the light. So when God says that he is the light, 
When in John, he says that he, as the light, has overcome the darkness. And now we are told that when we enter into this relationship with Jesus, that now we are this light that radiates the light of the glory of God to those around us. We are now bringing light into the darkness. For instance, does anybody have a drill? I have one. I'm really glad I wasn't counting on you folks tonight. So now we have darkness in here, and I just have a very small drill. I used to have smaller ones, but I kept breaking them. Watch this. Ready? Take my word on it. There is now light in this box. Why? Because just the smallest amount of light penetrates darkness. That light is now you and me wherever we live, learn, work, and play. That light is now us just radiating off what God has done in our lives to those around us. We have this power inside, and then he continues on um, in the next verse, verse 7 of chapter 4, he says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. Doesn't that sound so awesome? Let me tell you the brutal, honest truth about this passage. That treasure is the gospel. There is no greatest treasure. The good news that Jesus Christ defeated sin and defeated death so that if we put our faith in him, we now have victory over those. He says, and he put this in jars of clay. Jars of clay are the equivalent today of styrofoam cups. If you are drinking coffee outside and you drop a styrofoam cup and it shatters, I have yet to see anybody cry over this styrofoam cup that meant so much to them. I'll cry over the spilled coffee. Maybe you will as well. But nobody cries over a styrofoam cup. Why? It's worthless. Earthen vessels in the ancient world, if you ever want to find an earthen vessel, uh, artifact, all you have to do is go to any archaeological dig ever done. They are everywhere. There are dump sites of these things because they were just made very cheaply, very easily, and they were very replaceable. They broke and they would literally just throw them out. That's what we are being called in this passage. He's saying we've taken this incredible treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ and he's put it in you. A styrofoam cup. You're fragile. We break easy. We're not pretty sounds harsh, but it's to demonstrate, and he goes on continuing to say, it is because God is demonstrating just how powerful of a God he is in that he can change these earthen vessels, that he can take something uh, that would appear to have no value, but yet put this treasure inside it, making it absolutely invaluable. And then at the end of chapter 4, he says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes on what is seen, but not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Then he starts in chapter 5, and he's talking about now we have this hope that Jesus is now preparing a place for us to spend eternity with him in this new kingdom, in this new heaven on earth, that we get to spend eternity with our loving creator God where there is no more tears, there is no more pain, and that that is our hope. And he comes to verse 6. It says, therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we live by faith and not by sight. Again, we can have this confidence in knowing Jesus. We can have this confidence in having a relationship with him. And now we will actually drop to where I said we would originally start. In verse 11 of chapter 5, he says, since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our minds, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Again, another purpose that we have, that we are no longer living for ourselves, but living for him. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way. We do so no, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... The new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. This is a verse we say every time we baptize somebody. We say the old is gone. The new is here. This is a new creation. 
Uh, something we like to tell, uh, say a lot is, your past no longer defines you, God does. Your past, whatever was done in your past, whatever you did, whatever was done to you, whatever Satan tries to wrestle over the guilt and the shame that he tries to control you with and put on you, now when you turn your life over to God, it is gone. Your past no longer defines you, God does. And God says that you are his child, that you have purpose, that you have confidence that can only be found in him, that you can be at peace. All of these things that he offers, you are a new creation. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. That's the mission of God that we see, that God is always trying to reconcile the world to himself. And now that we, if we have entered into that relationship with him, we are reconciled to him. Now we have this ministry to point other people to him. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. I love that, not counting people's sins against them. Understand, all that we can do as humans is continually sin against God. I love Psalm 103, and David says, Lord, thank you for not, not holding me accountable to my sins, but rather you forgave them. Thank you for not treating me as my sins deserve. But you have loved me, and now you have forgiven me these sins. And now he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors or representatives as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We went from being enemies of God, always sinning against him, Trust me when I say there is no human in the world that can do to you what we do to God on a regular basis. There is no human in this world that can do something so bad to you that you have not treated God in the exact same way. We've treated him worse. And yet, because of his incredible love for us, he sent his son who took your sins and my sins on his shoulders, went to the cross, took our sins to the grave, left them there and rose again, defeating sin and death so that when we call on him, we have this new life, that we can become this new creation in him. And now, when God looks at you and you're in this relationship, he no longer sees sinful you. He sees his son's precious blood that covers you in that forgiveness state. And he sees you, as this passage says, that we become the righteousness of God. That Jesus Christ, who is perfect, became sin for you and for me so that we can be seen as righteous. Amen? As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. Don't just take it and be that farmer that just hopes the harvest crawls in. That just hopes everything happens. He's not going to put any effort. He's not going to put any labor. He's not going to do anything. Don't receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Our prayer is that if you are here this evening and you have never put your faith in Christ, that today is the day of salvation, that you don't leave here without calling out to God, asking him to forgive you of your sins, asking him to become the leader of your life. So through all this, and you're probably curious because we haven't even made it to one fill in the blank yet, but according to my timer, we've only been going for seven minutes. That's a lie. So through all this, how do we gain a harvest focus? How do we become focused on the harvest? Well, I'm glad you asked because I have an entire outline about it. Number one, we have to see the harvest. We have to see the harvest. We ask yourself the question, what are the distractions that keep me from seeing the harvest? When we think of the harvest being the people in our lives, uh, I'll use the terminology, the circle of accountability. The people that, you ha that God has sovereignly placed you around, where you live, learn, work, and play, your neighborhood, your job, uh, whatever, your kid's school, the soccer practice, the soccer game, the, you name it. Wherever God has sovereignly placed you in his plan, 
Those people around you are now your circle of accountability, meaning now you have these people that God has said, I want you to radiate my glory and I want you to be a representative of me in this area. So that's just where are the distractions that keep me from seeing the harvest? We interact with people every day in some form. C.H. Spurgeon, which I'm going to give you a couple of his quotes tonight, some of my favorites. He said, winners of souls must first be weepers of souls. Winners of souls must first be weepers of souls. Every year, Charleston as a whole, greater Charleston area and some will become more lost. It's expected in two years that the greater Charleston area, the percentage of evangelical Christians, meaning people that believe that salvation comes by faith through grace, not of works, people that um, believe the word of God, they will be in the single-digit population of the greater Charleston area within two years. It's been that fast of a plummet. In the time that we first were looking to move down here to plant a church in 2014, 2015, there was a Barna survey, and he calls it the 100 most biblically-minded cities from the 100 cities, the 100 biggest cities in the country, and where they rank. And when we first were coming down, 2014, 2015, uh, Charleston was like number 32 towards the top. Uh, Lynchburg, Virginia, and Roanoke, Virginia were number one. Chattanooga, Tennessee was number two. Um, and that was 32. Within three years, Charleston had dropped to like 78 in that amount of time. And that was still three or four years ago. I don't know where it is now. But just to give an idea of the changing demographic here in this specific area. More and more people are moving here. More and more people are moving here every day. So Somerville, Charleston, becomes more lost every year. When was the last time that you shed tears over the lostness of our city? When was the last time that the thought of your friends, coworkers, going through life not knowing Christ has affected you emotionally? Winners of souls must first be weepers of souls. Number two, how do we gain a harvest focused? We have to have a value on the harvest. A value. The question being, do you value lost people and see them as opportunities? What is the value that you place on lost people? A harvest must be something we want and need. Going back to Matthew chapter 9, it says Jesus was filled with compassion. Do you value people? Jesus saw the crowds. He saw that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion on them. He healed them. He was there for them. He told his disciples to do the same as he's saying, now you are the people that are going to go. You are the workers that are going out into the harvest to do the exact same thing. Are you filled with compassion for the souls of your community? Every day we encounter people that we, we don't really see. They're there, they're in front of us. The question is, do you actually see them? Your baristas, your servers, uh, the guy that you are giving money so that you can put gas in your car. Do we see them or are they just there, they're serving their purpose, I give them money, they return a service to me. Do we see them as souls, or do we just see them as a highly functioning robot that provides me with what I want? Every day we walk, have conversations, we do something with another human being. Do we actually put a value on them? Do we see the value in them that God sees in them? Do we see them as souls that need a savior just like we do? Or are we just trying to make it as quick of an interaction as possible? Number three. In order to have a harvest focused, we must pray. We must pray for the harvest. This is a question when I was going through um, the Cypress Project eight years ago. Neil McGlone was teaching and he asked this question, and I'll never forget it. He said, if God answered your prayers from this past week, how many more people would be in his kingdom? In other words, the people, who did you pray for this last week? that they would come to know Christ. And if all of them that you specifically prayed for came to know Christ this week, 
how many more people would be in his kingdom? Because I had to write zero. And I was a pastor planning a church. And I felt sick to my stomach. And I said, I never want that to have to be my answer ever again. We talked before about do we pray believing? Do we pray believing that God can actually do what only God can do, that God can do above and beyond anything we can think or imagine according to Ephesians 3? Or do we decide who we're going to talk to? Do we decide who we're going to pray for? Oh, it's not worth praying for them. Reaping the harvest only comes through divine empowerment. Our heart must be captured by the heart of our God on mission. I ask the question again, does our church have a mission or does God's mission have our church? But the same is true for us individually. Do we have a mission in our lives or are we attached to what God's mission is for us? Again, just in these quick five, six chapters, we see over and over, and this is what you've been called to. This is your ministry of reconciliation. This is what you now have been called to do. And if we were farmers, would we be starving to death if we approached the harvest of souls like we would approach the harvest of making sure our family was fed? We must pray. Number four, in order to have a harvest focused, this is where we always lose people. Uh, We have to engage the harvest. Imagine if we were on a battlefield and I was like, okay, here's what we got to do. We got to have a plan. We got to have a strategy. We're going to pray. But I don't think any of us really wants to fight, right? Like that stuff looks dangerous. I don't really want to enter into that. I don't want to engage the enemy. So we'll just retreat again. But if they keep marching after us, we will retreat again. And we will just keep retreating until they are so tired that it's never been a victory pattern. But in all the different trainings that I've done at different churches and at different colleges, and you're telling people how to actually talk to lost people, and then you're like, okay, everybody, we're going to go out and get in our cars, and we're going to drive to downtown Somerville, and we're going to actually talk to people. I will meet you there. The chances of me and maybe three other people being the only ones that show up are pretty high. You will immediately remember something of great importance that you have to do as while you're walking to your car. Your child will be like, I'm hungry, and you're like, so am I, bud. Let's go. And I only say this from past experience. This is always, if I said to this room right now, we're driving downtown Charleston because tonight we are going to see somebody come to know Christ. Not many of us would show up in Charleston. Why? Engaging is scary, like on a battlefield. Everybody's a tough guy until it happens. And then all of a sudden, nobody wants to engage. And the spiritual battle is so much more. And although none of us, I don't believe, tonight would encounter somebody challenging our faith and killing us for our faith, the idea that somebody might think less of me because I share my faith with them is overwhelming and it keeps us from doing what God has actually called us to do. So we have to engage. We actually have to go and start. So the question is, what is your strategy to talk to people about following Jesus? What is your strategy? How do you go about it? Another C.H. Spurgeon quote, every believer is either a missionary or an imposter. Every believer is either a missionary or an imposter. If you truly believe in something, you do something about it. If you truly believe in something, you do something about it. If I truly believe that my neighbors are lost and they don't know Christ and that they're going to spend eternity without Christ, if I believe that and I can't imagine going through life in that way or spending eternity separated from the Almighty God, I will do something about it. Making me a missionary. If I don't do anything about it, but I'm always telling people what I believe, I'm an imposter. I'm a liar. Please understand that you have to start somewhere. You have to start somewhere. One of my favorite stories in the Bible, because of just how simple it is, is the blind man in John and Matthew and most of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John. He's blind his entire life. Jesus heals him. He has sight again. Right? That's a celebration. And the religious leaders hate it. They can't stand it. And so they tell him, what happened? He's like, well, I was, uh, I was blind. And then I met Jesus. 
And now I can see. And they're like, no, but what really happened? I was like, so I was blind. I'm not a medical professional. I don't know exactly what happened. I know I met Jesus, and now I see. And if you know Jesus, you have that testimony. I didn't know Jesus. Then I met him, and everything's changed. The pattern of my life has changed. Things are just different, and I can't even explain it, but something is different because I met Jesus. It's such a beautiful example of just starting somewhere. He's sitting with the religious leaders. He's called into the court system, and his parents are threatened to be kicked out of the uh, synagogue, which is basically their place of religious community. They're threatened, and he says, all you have to do is, like, if your son keeps telling people this, you're going to be kicked out. So they call him in front of the court, and they're like, all right, so what happened? And he's like, so I was blind. You know this. I've lived here my whole life. It's a small town, right? Like, I was blind. I met Jesus, and now I see. And these are all of the people who study the law, who've added to the law of God. They're the most theological minds at that time. And here's somebody with zero theological training. Quite literally, and I don't mean this as a joke, he's never read anything in his life because he was blind. He doesn't know anything. But he's standing up to the religious leaders just because of what Jesus meant to him. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have that testimony. That's where you start. Listen. I can't even name all the books of the Bible, right? I can barely get four. What I do know, I was blind, I met Jesus, and now I see. I didn't know Jesus, I met Jesus, everything's changed. Start somewhere. This is, if you're thinking I'm harping on this, I am. You didn't start walking right away. You didn't, there's almost nothing in life that you were just really good at the first time you tried it. It takes practice. You learn. You have conversations. You get asked questions you don't know the answer to. You know who has stumped me with theological questions the most over the last five years? And it just happened again. I go into my chiropractor, and he says, so my eight-year-old daughter has a question for you. It started when she was five. She has stumped me, and I just say, I don't know. I have to go look that up. I have to figure out. He goes, all right, I'll just have you talk to her. This little girl comes up with these questions, and they're harder than any question I was ever asked by a seminary professor. And I was like, I have no idea. I have to look it up. You engage it. You start somewhere. It's a learning process. Nobody's mastered anything. If somebody acts like they have, don't talk to them. It's always a learning process, but you have to start somewhere. Every conversation you have will be different. And then the last one. How do we have a harvest focus? You have to own it. We've talked about this. You have to own the lostness in your community. You have to own the lostness in that circle of accountability. How well do you understand your responsibility for the harvest around you? If you found out tomorrow morning that you were the only believer, you were the only one that believed in Jesus in the entire city, how would your life change? What would you do? Would it be important for other people to find out? You understand that that's the responsibility that you have. That we own it. Now we can't make anyone choose Jesus. That's something that's between them and God. But we are responsible for sharing. We are responsible for radiating that that light of God off of us. We are responsible for being a light in a dark world. Probably my favorite C.H. Spurgeon quote, the first time I heard this, was probably eight years ago at a church, and I actually started crying this is not what my mindset was. He said, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled with the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. When we are called ambassadors, when we are called representatives, 
of Christ. This is what it means. That it becomes our responsibility personally, not the other guys. It becomes our responsibilities to pray for, to warn people, to demonstrate a better way, to demonstrate the love of Christ, to demonstrate the care, that compassion that he demonstrated for the crowds, that that would be what we are demonstrating. Just some fun exercises for you this week in your community groups, in your conversations. Keep track. What percentage of conversations you have in a given week with people that don't know Christ? What is the percentage of people that you interact with every week of people that don't know Christ? Again, we see Jesus tell his disciples as he's telling us. He's entrusting them with the harvest. He's entrusting us with the harvest. Pray for the laborers, for the laborers are few, but the fields, this is a promise that I think we forget. The fields are ripe unto harvest. I love singing the songs tonight. Why? Because it was targeting hurting people. Do you know who's hurting? Everyone. Do you know what the hardest months for pastors are? And I'm not exaggerating on this. The hardest months for pastors and counselors and therapists are usually November and December. People have all sorts of memories tied to these holidays that are brutal and crushing for whatever reason. People are having to interact with people that they just don't want to interact with, but something about a tree makes you have to interact with them. And it causes hurt and it causes pain. We remember the people that we lost this last year, like Sarah was saying, to open up the service. This is a tough time of year for people. At the same time, you're supposed to act happy all the time. And so as the people who uh, are there to counsel and to help people, we get phone calls and text messages and emails, and it's something that I absolutely love doing. But just know that everyone around you in your neighborhood are all going through those same things, and a lot of them don't have a loving Heavenly Father in God. People are hurting even though they're trying to make it seem like everything is okay, but really there's going day to day trying to hold everything together. Jesus entrusted the harvest to us as his representatives, as his ambassadors, as our ministry, as our calling. We are responsible for this. We are responsible to God for this. So here's some questions, but I also have an answer to it. Number one question, for you to discuss in your community groups, for you to talk about at home. Do you know how to share the gospel? Do you know how to share the good news of Jesus Christ with somebody? Um... Follow-up question, have you ever done that before? Have you ever done this before? Um, I have good news. As we've been talking about discipleship and what we want to start implementing in January, uh, we are going to start with five classes, five equipped classes uh, starting next year. And they're going to be, uh, I'm really excited for them. We'll have more information coming out. But one is just how to pray. He's going to have a class that we will go through, just what is prayer? How do we pray? How important is it to us? How do we make time for it? Uh, we'll just be going through, and we're going to offer these at different times and different schedules and different ways so that everyone can have an opportunity to do it. Another one that we want to offer is uh, just this. How do you share the gospel? How do you have this gospel conversation with people? Uh, Derek Hummel has been teaching this for years as a missionary, and so we're going to have these times of uh, just coming together to actually say we're going to have a class to help people understand how do we have these gospel conversations with people because we know uh, several people have never had those conversations. So that's why we're specifically asking this question. Uh, how do I read the Bible? Um, what, is, what does the Bible even mean? Uh, we'll probably, I was going to announce this next week, but we're probably going to start some groups starting up pretty soon of people that just want to get together once a month, maybe every other week, where we'll just start walking through the Bible together uh, outside of community group, outside of church, where we can just start having these discussions on what the, what the Bible is. Um, I'm trying to remember the other two. It'll come to me. I got really excited about that. So we are actually, we're not just asking these questions like, hey, do you know how to share the gospel? Well, go do it. We're saying, do you know how to share the gospel? If not, let us know because we want to know how to schedule these classes um, so that people, so that we can equip you to be these laborers in the harvest. We don't want to just tell you, go do this, and then not offer you any resources and, and helping you know how do you do that. So we just need you to be honest with us so that we can uh, help you walk through these things. Um, another question, how can you value someone this week? 
there's two ways that I'm just going to throw out there, and I tried to do both of them this week. I did okay at the one, and I failed at the other. Here's two ways that I want you to just start somewhere this week. Number one, just go for a prayer walk. Just go for a prayer walk. Just go for a walk in your neighborhood. Uh, I've been able to do this several times and with the, with the goal of if I talk to somebody, I'm just going to ask him how I can pray for them. There's a gentleman in my neighborhood who has come to almost every grocery giveaway. Uh, he's had a pretty rough um, retirement experience and some hard things, so we've had multiple conversations, and that just happened to be who was outside, and I had a long conversation with him this week and was able to pray with him. That was kind of easy because I've done this for the last three years with him. So just go start somewhere. Pray for them. Even while you're driving, just pray as you're driving down the road. Pray for the neighborhoods. Pray for the apartment complexes. Pray for all these people that are moving in. The second one I didn't do great at. Last week I really thought as we were putting this message together, I have a really good friend named Mike. He's a pastor up in Pennsylvania. Um, known each other for a really long time. And uh, as long as I've known him, we'll go to a restaurant and I'll be in mid-sentence and the server will come up and he'll look at the server and be like, hey, in a minute we're going to pray for our meal. Is there anything we can pray for you about? And I hate to tell you this because I'm not supposed to say this as a pastor. I'm always like super embarrassed. Like, oh gosh, this crazy pastor guy, right? And the, they'll often say, depending on what state we're in, in the south they're like, yes, you can pray for me about this. In the north they're like, don't ever say that to me again. But he came down to visit four or five years ago. Uh, we were meeting at Fellowship of Oakbrook at the time. We ran across the street to the restaurant. <clears throat> we were just grabbing something to go. It was a Saturday night before church. And the girl at the counter, uh, and he goes, oh, by the way, we're going to eat these meals when we go back, uh, and we're going to pray before we eat. Is there anything we can be praying for you about? And tears just immediately welled up in her eyes. And she said, I'm a recovering addict. I've been clean for six months. And for some reason today, all I wanted to do is use. Can you pray for me that I wouldn't use? absolutely can we pray for you right now and so we talked well she actually ended up coming to church for there were a couple months and then she ended up moving away i believe um i was so convicted this has happened a couple times uh, i had uh, a couple meals with them when we were up in new york this last summer and same thing most of the time people say no i'm all good thanks um and then a waitress just started to get teary-eyed and she says yeah you can be and just starts going into the what's going on with her um daughter who's a single mom and is possibly going to lose both of her kids, and uh, he had this opportunity to share the gospel with her. This week, I went out to eat with some of you, and I didn't do that one time. I wanted to, so I, I bombed. So if you haven't done that this last week, you're with me. Let's do better this week. Let's try something else. Let's try it. Just two simple ways. The third way is what we have here at Hope Church, and we call it a pi-squared card. And that's all it is, is a card that looks like this. And uh, I think we have them. We're going to start handing them out right now. Do we have those cards in the back? Shannon's got them. So we're just going to start handing these out. If you already have one, great. <clears throat> Feel free to take another one and fill it up. But it's something very, very simple. And again, this isn't a magical card or anything like that. It just says pray, invest, invite. That's why we call it pi squared. This is, on the back, there's just five blank places for you to write five people who... One way to say it is they're close to you, but not close to God. Uh, that you know them, but they don't know Christ. And then if you're still having trouble, there's just some hints on there of people that you might be able to pray for. What the goal is, is that you keep this card. I, you'll usually see it on the dashboard in my car, uh, on my refrigerator, it's on my office. But it's just a reminder to pray. Why? Part of it is, I never want to be asked that question again about who did you pray for this week and would they, if everyone came to know the Lord this week that you specifically prayed for, how many would the God's kingdom grow by? So at least I know I'm praying for five people almost every day. But also it's praying for them, but then how do I start to invest in their life? How am I investing in their life in some way to demonstrate that love of God in their life? Again, that's the engaging part. And then inviting them. What am I inviting them to? Am I inviting them over for dinner? Am I inviting them to a community group? Am I inviting them to church? The most important thing that you can invite them to is a relationship with Jesus Christ. Invite them to know Jesus. One of my favorite disciples that isn't talked about much in the Bible is Andrew. And I say this just about every disciple. Every time you see Andrew, he's bringing somebody to Jesus. That's it. Anytime Andrew is recorded, he's bringing his brother Peter to meet Jesus. In Acts, when the, when the Holy Spirit comes on them, Andrew is bringing Greeks to meet Jesus. 
Andrew is just, that's all that's recorded about him. The person that brought the boy with the two fish and five loaves that Jesus fed everyone with, Andrew brought him to Jesus. Andrew was just continually inviting people to meet Jesus. Didn't matter how old they were, where they were, what they believed, Andrew just invited people to meet Jesus. So that word invite, anytime I see that, I think of Andrew. Andrew just invited people to know Jesus. So that's what I really hope. And then I just want to leave you with this thought, because this is something else that's been really weighing on my mind. How do you do, and you can write this down, I don't know if it's in the notes, but how do you do with interruptions? It's always interesting when you spend time with your family, because you realize how many similarities you have, which sometimes it's funny, sometimes it is not. And so this summer I was staying with my brother, um, and our wives were talking about how both of us, and it's basically everybody in my family, I'm in the middle of seven kids, we like to be as efficient as possible. And the thing that annoys us more than anything else is if you interrupt my efficiency. I want to walk the fastest, I want to drive the fastest, I will always take the shortcut, I will always go through that green light that's turning. Why? Because I want to be efficient. I want to be there as fast as possible, I want to do everything as fast as possible. Interruptions are the worst. But something that we see in uh, Valadia, when Derek and Valadia moved here, we were in a meeting and Valadia said, uh, yeah, she goes, I'm just trying to handle interruptions like Jesus. And I was like, what do you mean? She's, she's like, well, whenever you see Jesus in the Bible, most of the stories that are recorded are interruptions that he took time for, that he took time to talk to and to demonstrate his love for. And so I just need to do that. And I was like, shut up! Nobody cares! You know how convicting that is? No, I didn't say that. I thought it. But something I'm realizing is, why didn't I talk to that, those different servers I had this week? It wasn't efficient to what I was trying to get done. Why didn't I take time to pray for people and let them know I was praying for people on my prayer walks? I'm trying to get to where I'm going. I have a watch that's making sure I'm keeping the right pace. Are we letting efficiency or are we letting opportunities for the harvest pass us by. I'm going to ask you this week, see if that points out. It's funny as I said this in pre-service, and I said it's going to be a rough week of interruptions. And I don't know if you were watching, but all during the singing, I have never been interrupted more by my son, ever. So I'm really looking forward to this week because there's no school. Are we taking time for interruptions in our life? This week, I, I just have a feeling that all of us can come back next week and say, you know what, I took time for an interruption and here's how God used it. Look for interruptions this week. Take time for interruptions this week. Lord, I thank you so much for the opportunity to know you, to have a relationship with you. Lord, I thank you that you loved us so much that you gave your son for us. Lord, I pray that tonight if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, that they would call out to you that they would seek your forgiveness, that they would ask you to be the leader of their life. Lord, I pray for those of us that do know you. My, my prayer is, Lord, that you would convict us, that you would help us to see the harvest, that you would give us a passion for the harvest, that you would put compassion in our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would help us to point your glory to the people around us, Lord, we know we are surrounded by people that are hurting and by people that need you. We also know that you have given us this ministry of reconciliation to point people to be reconciled with their creator. Lord, I pray that you work in each and every one of our hearts, that we would do this for your glory. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.